You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, and we're privileged to have uh, economist Martin Lally joining us. And it's like a economics seminar we're about to have because economics is not what you think it is. You know, we tend to have these people telling us about what's going to happen in the world. To me, they're not really economists. But what's great about economics is explaining the behavior that we observe, predicting human behavior, but also thinking rationally about decisions that normally we wouldn't think could be subject to a proper analysis. And to an economist like Martin, it's just obvious and second nature because they've been trained in this stuff. But to the rest of us, it's a bit of a struggle. Now, let me set this up. You're sitting there in Wellington and you might be part of the council or you might be asked for your opinion. And the question is, should we cut the speed limit? Because the Wellington City Council is proposing to cut the speed limit to 30 kilometres through most Wellington streets on the basis that it'll make the streets safer. And you're looking at that and you're thinking, oh, I don't know, I guess it'd be good to have make the streets safer, but why 30, why not zero? Like, how do you, where do you draw the line? Uh, how much safer will it be? Will, will people's lives be saved? What do we know? And we've got Martin to walk us through how he, as an economist, thinks about this question. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, Rodney. So to a normal person, that would seem to be a conundrum, but you can break it down for us, can't you, in terms of how to think about this in a sensible way. And you can do that even without a precise understanding of the numbers because you can, even with a ballpark figures, you can demonstrate whether it's a good idea or not, right? Indeed. So tell me how you do that. Well, the first thing is to look at um, how many lives you'd save by, um, by cutting the speed limit from 50k to 30k. And a good starting point would be to say how many lives would be saved if we cut the speed to zero. In other words, we eliminated all pedestrian and uh, cyclist deaths on the reasonable assumption that pedestrian and cycle deaths are um, all or almost entirely uh, caused by collisions with cars. And the place to go to would be to have a look at what deaths have been for pedestrians and cyclists um, in, uh, in Wellington City in uh, recent times on, on an annual basis. And um, I'm not able to get data for Wellington City, this data for the Wellington region and data for New Zealand. So it'd be reasonable to take the data for New Zealand and scale it by the um, proportion of New Zealand's population that's accounted for by Wellington City. So the country has a population of uh, 5 million. Wellington City has about 
250,000 uh, people. So that's about 5% of the country's population. So you could reasonably suppose that would uh, account for 5% of the country's deaths. Now, how many pedestrians die in a typical um, year in New Zealand? Well, New Zealand Transport Authority's got data on that. About 25 a year. It's not very many. That, that just stopping you there, Martin, and that that's an amazing breakdown already, isn't it? Because, um, by the way, you're on Reality Tech Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hull. I'm talking to economist Martin Lally, and we're just understanding how an economist thinks about a question. So you've already got an understanding that we know that 25 people as pedestrians are killed on average a year in New Zealand. I wonder how many of those, we don't know the answer, the city councils would even know that number. I doubt they would because that's an extraordinary in itself because if I'd been asked, I would have said, hmm, 100? I, I wouldn't have had a clue and it's 25. So carry on. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, no, that, it's an amazing fine. figure like just to ask that question. Mm, yeah, so, um, and that's not just the latest year, that's been for the past several years, it's been about 25 a year. And Wellington City accounts for, and we're talking Wellington City, we're not talking the Wellington region, the mm -hmm. Wellington City Council only has powers over the Wellington City area. So that's about 5% of New Zealand's population. So there's about one pedestrian death a year in the Wellington City Council area. And the absolute best you could hope for if you um, reduce the speed limit would be to eliminate that one death. That's the absolute because, most. Because you couldn't do better than that mm. and you're not likely to do that well. Mm, indeed. Um, reducing the speed limit um, to 30, there's still going to be um, some deaths, even if everyone conforms to 30K. And, of course, there's lots of people who are not going to conform to 30K. And the kind of people who are, I suspect, most likely to kill someone in a car, people who are drunk, uh, young hoons, etc., um, they're the people who are least likely to change their behaviour as a result of the speed limit going from 50 to 30. So the absolute best-case scenario is to eliminate that one death. Now, um, what, what, what's a life worth? Well, that seems like a horrible question to ask, but that is a question that um, entities in the um, central government area are assessing all the time. And um, there are a variety of numbers in the, um, in the central government area, but the only one that's actually based on um, survey evidence, looking at what people would be willing to pay to, to reduce deaths, is a recent uh, survey that was um, commissioned by uh, New Zealand Transport Authority. And they uh, value uh, a life of a, a person of average age and good health at about $12 million. And relative to other government agencies, that's the highest figure we've got. Um, Treasury values a life at about a million. Uh, the medical system values a life at about two million. So if we use the highest number we've got amongst government entities that are actually putting a value on life, we've got $12 million. So the life you're saving is worth about $12 million, um, the, the pedestrian life. Now, in addition to um, saving lives, you'll also uh, reduce the number of um, people who, um, pedestrians who suffer from accidents, um, uh, serious accidents, so less serious accidents, um, uh, 
again, the New Zealand Transport Authority, their commission study puts a value on those things as well. So it values a, um, a serious accident at about 600,000 and a minor accident at about 60,000. So you add that all up um, and um, using data on the number of deaths in the country times 5%, the number of serious accidents in the country times 5%, the number of less uh, serious accidents, the deaths are multiplied by 12 million, the serious accidents by 600,000, you add it all up, um, you get about, uh, about 20 million. You do the same for cyclists, repeat exactly the same process. You get something like about 30 million. That's the absolute best case you could hope for by reducing the speed limit from 50k to 30k. You eliminate all those deaths and, and, and accidents. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an absolute best case. Uh, um, you couldn't really expect to get anywhere near that. Uh, a sort of starting point might be half of that, that you could eliminate half of these deaths, half of these serious accidents and so forth. Well, then the value of the lives you've saved, the avoided accidents and so forth, is not 30 mil, it's about, uh, about 15 mil. Now, what are the costs? Well, some signs are going to have to be changed, but that's, that's minor. The really big cost in this area is that if you lower the speed limit from 50 to 30k, people are going to spend more time travelling around. Now, you might say, as the mayor does of Wellington City, that, that doesn't matter. Safety is important. The value of people's time is nothing. She's reported. Oh, really? Yeah, she's reported in the press as saying that that's just not important. Well, why not just make everyone walk? Indeed, indeed. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that later, but let's um, just um, <clears throat> um, looking um, at the issue here um, that I'm focusing on. We'll come back later to, you know, why 30K, why not 20K, why not zero, but just taking the 30K uh, point. The question then is, what's the value of that time? Well, again, the New Zealand Transport Authority, in their analysis on the value of lives, they also look at the value of time. So, for example, if you build a new motorway that takes you from A to B, it gets people there more quickly than the old one. And for people in Wellington, the, the outstanding example of that is the Transmission Gully motorway. The whole point of that is to get people from A to B more quickly. Um, Auckland, of course, has its counterparts to that as well. And people value time. Um, and the surveys that the New Zealand Transport Authority have done indicates that people are valuing time at about 20 bucks an hour. So we've got a quarter of a million people in Wellington. Um, the result of um, lowering the speed limit is they're going to spend more time uh, on the road getting from A to B. Now, let's just, just to start the analysis, suppose... On average, Wellingtonians will, as a result of changing the speed limit from 50 to 30k, they'll spend an extra minute a day. Now, it could hardly be any less than that. It can't be seconds. It's got to be in the minutes. Um, well, let's just call it a minute a day. Well, that's um, 365 minutes a year. That's, that's six hours a year. And each of those hours is worth 20 bucks. And what's the number of people? Well, it's about a quarter of a million people in Wellington. Add it all up, that's 25 million. So wow. even if the time, the extra time people spend on the roads in Wellington is only one minute per day extra on average, that's worth 25 million. Uh, whereas the earlier um, calculation on the uh, benefits of the saved lives and so forth, it, it can't be any more than about 15 million. 
So straight away, even with this, what I think is a ridiculously low uh, figure of one minute per day extra time spent on the road, it doesn't pass the test even with such a ridiculously low figure. If it's two minutes a day, then the, um, the value of people's time, instead of being 25 million, that's been uh, chewed up, it's 50 million. If it's three minutes a day, it's 75 million. So the, the cost-benefit ratio just looks worse and worse and worse. Now, these aren't the idle musings of, of Martin Lally, economist. The New Zealand Transport Authority has gone to a great deal of trouble to value life and to value people's time for precisely this sort of purpose. They go to all this trouble, they produce this manual for the purpose of making decisions about motorways in New Zealand, but then you get councillors, people like Tori Farno, Mayor of Wellington, where she's just quoted as saying, people's time is worth nothing. The priority is to, to save our children. Um, now, it's, it's this, this disconnect between what a rational government entity is doing and what um, these um, these councillors in, in cities around the country, presumably totally oblivious to that work, uh, at least they were totally oblivious to it until a week ago. Um, they're not oblivious to it now because I sent them all, every councillor in Wellington, an email um, advising them about the New Zealand Transport Authority's latest work and the implications of it for their proposal. Did I even get an acknowledgement of receipt? No, I didn't. Goodness me. Now, you've always, as an economist, you're always worried because it strikes me that economics and politics are at war because politics is always about absolutes. You know, um, one life, other people's time and convenience doesn't enter into it. You know, one life, a pedestrian dead is too many, or uh, every life lost is a tragedy and we'll do everything we can to stop that life being lost, which is not true. No mm -hmm. one lives like that. No society lives like that. It sounds good when you hear it, but it makes for absurd decision-making, doesn't it? Indeed, in this case here, um, there's nothing inherently absurd about a proposal to reduce um, speeds from no. 50 to 30k until you do the analysis. The analysis will tell you whether it's a good idea or not, and the analysis might lead to the conclusion that it is a good idea um, to reduce it from 50 to 30k, but my first cut at it, so to speak, suggests um, that it isn't. And even the councillors um, who voted for this clearly do not believe that time is worth nothing and that deaths are the absolute priority because if that were the case, they'd just ban cars in the city altogether. And they're not doing that. So they are, in fact, trading off the value of people's time against the value of lives. It's just that they're being utterly dishonest by pretending that they're doing otherwise. And that trade-off, uh, here's another interesting concept, isn't it? That first of all, there is always a trade-off and we had this pretense, which we covered with you previously about the lockdowns, that it didn't matter, we'd lock down the whole country to save a life sort of thing. It, it, the cost and the benefits weren't considered when clearly they should be. There's also this interesting concept, Martin, that relates to this, and it's about decision-making at the margin. It's not like an absolute, 
it's always a little bit more or a little bit less. And what does that mean? Can you explain that for us? Uh, well, um, yes. Um, we currently have a, a speed limit of uh, 50k in most parts of Wellington City. There are some places that um, uh, have been brought down to 30k. These are uh, places where there are collections of shops on both sides of the road um, and um, presumably lots of people um, uh, congregate in those areas. Um, so if you are going to change the status quo, the natural um, supposition would be that the, the optimal value isn't too very far, isn't too far from it. So you think about a small change um, from that, um, that current position and you might implement that small change and then you gather some more data. So you might, for example, change the speed limit from uh, 50K to 30K in just selected areas where there's high traffic densities, and then you'd assess whether um, that had uh, saved any lives. And if it had saved quite a lot of lives, that would provide you with further information to assess whether we might make uh, another move in that particular direction. Mm. Um, so it, the analysis is, is naturally um, incremental. You start with your current position and, and look to make um, small changes one side or other of that, gather more data, and then uh, perhaps make another change. The, have you done a lot of road safety work, Martin, in terms of economic analysis? Um, no, um, this is uh, not um, an area that I've had um, any previous okay. involvement. It's but, so but the, tools, the tools are, are, are the same. Because it's, it's such an interesting area because the other thing that you learn through economics is thinking about incentives and thinking about the change in behaviour that a rule um, makes. Because it seems to me, and I think to economists, that every time you make a rule, you lead people to rely on the rule and not their own responsibility for their decision-making. You know, it's sort of like, I'll drive at 50 unless the government says otherwise rather than coming up, it's raining, oh, there's a school ahead, oh, I notice it's 3 o'clock, oh, I better slow down to 20 k's. No, no, the government says it's okay for 50. And there's this perverse result, and the one I particularly observe these days is my father taught me to drive, you know, 60-odd years ago, and he always he was a professional driver, professional truck driver. He always said, you have to assume when you go around a blind corner that there's something on the road. <laughs> like you, you don't tear around a blind corner assuming there to be nothing there. He said, you have to be ready to stop. If you can't see what's ahead, slow down so you can stop in the distance available to you. Now, what I notice these days is we expect there to be cones warning us of something up ahead, and if there aren't cones, it's safe. And we drive like, people drive like maniacs on blind corners because no one's warning them not to, and it's the opposite of what my father taught me. And it seems to me, these days, 
people have become less responsible for their own driving and more reliant on being warned. Does that make sense? Well, yes, um, and there's quite a bit of um, research uh, on that question, the extent to which um, people change their behaviour in the presence of uh, rules which are designed to enhance safety. And, um, yeah, the rule is um, um, will enhance safety by X if everyone um, uh continues to behave as before, subject to obeying the new rule, but if they become less um, careful as a result of the safety rule, feeling that everything's fine, um, then there's some um, offset in the other direction. For example, seatbelts. Um, if you um, mandate seatbelts, well, um, it seems like um, people will um, definitely be safer than before, but only if they continue to drive in the same way as before. Um, the, um, the evidence is that at least some people um, in the presence of these kinds of safety interventions, they drive less safely than before because they feel that, well, the seatbelt will save me from, from my foolishness. But yes, there is some offset. Um, you know, what the net effect is has to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. Because the, the classic, the, the important point, I think, that relates to this particular one is if you... Um, um, bring the speed limit down from um, 50 to 30, people might very well feel, well, at 30 it's safe so I can just um, play on my cell phone and so forth, whereas yes. they might not have done that at 50k. They might have uh, taken yes. that care. Yes. There's this interesting thing, isn't it, because implicit in choosing to do something, whether it's go out and risk getting COVID or hop in our car and drive to the shops, we are implicitly acknowledging and accepting a certain degree of risk. And we don't necessarily calculate it, but it's there. And that's when you observe that, and the, the, the suggestion is that, as you say, make the road safer, people adjust so they're taking on board the same risk as before. Well, that may or may not be the case. As I said, that has to be assessed. On yeah, the because there's a, you know the interesting studies, and if not, I'll share them with you, about um, ABS braking. This yeah. is one of my favourite yeah. examples because the uh, Mercedes invented uh, ABS braking, which saves you from your car's skidding. And if you swap from a car that's – all cars these days have ABS braking, so the wheels won't lock – and you go to a car without them, you get quite a shock because you can't brake while turning your wheels. You'll skid out of the corner. Uh, you can drive with ABS braking and people brake right through the corner. Mm -hmm. And Mercedes invented this technology, thought it was so amazing, they allowed everyone to copy it, all the other car makers to copy it because they didn't want to make it exclusive to Mercedes. And so it was copied. And there's been a number of studies done particularly with taxi drivers, where they divided them in half and said, you know, these guys over here have got uh, ABS braking and these guys haven't, and they knew, and the accident rate wasn't much different. But what changed was the type of accident. So the taxis with ABS braking tended to roll around corners rather than slide mm. because you'd have ABS braking and you'd approach a corner faster. And it's these, it's so, to me, that is so amazingly fascinating about human behavior.
But it, it is nevertheless worth noting that um, the number of people who die on New Zealand roads is now about 300 a year. Yes. Back in the 70s, uh, when it peaked, it was about 800 a year when the population was only a fraction of what it is now. So clearly the... Um, the something's caused that, and the obvious explanation for it is cars are safer. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps people are, are driving more safely, um, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. So that the even if the safety improvements have led to people changing their behaviours in the riskier direction, the overall effect clearly is still um, uh, producing lower death rates. Do you have you looked at? And this is a question without. Um, uh, not allowing you to pre-formulate your answer, but I often wondered what the injury level is like, because obviously not only we've got more population, we'd definitely be driving more kilometres a year, um, more kilometre hours, um, and yes, the death rate's gone down, which is a terrific success, and we've had so much go on safer roads, uh, better warnings, safe, much safer cars, much, much safer cars. Goodness me, you know, uh, any little child in a car unrestrained used to be just straight through the window, uh, the front window, and killed. Uh, whereas now you're sitting there cocooned, you've got crunch bars, you've got seat belts, you've got airbags. Um, the car's been tested and tested and tested in accident situations. The roads are much better. The brakes are much better. The tyres are much better. All these things. but uh, And also cell phones and rapid response and helicopters and medical science in terms of dealing with someone injured. I wonder what injury, what's happening to injuries, whether they've dropped or people are surviving crashes better but still injured. Um, I, I would expect that if you can get to people uh, in a serious accident more quickly, um, you will convert some deaths into serious injuries. So mm. I would expect, not having seen the data, I would expect the ratio of deaths to serious injuries is lower now than it used to be. Mm. And it's, and the, same on, it's the same on a battlefield. Um, but battlefield 200 years ago, if you were seriously injured, virtually all of those people would have died soon afterwards from hypothermia or shock or whatever. But uh, the ratio of uh, deaths to serious injuries on the battlefield, at least if you're in the American Army or a similar army, is uh, way, way, way below one. It's it's the same point. Yes, a simple gunshot would kill you. Uh, It might just take a week. Um, Also, tell me, you mentioned about... NZTA, who are the most sophisticated, I think, at this in terms of getting a feel for the costs and benefits of lives saved. You mentioned a huge array of numbers. So from what you said earlier, you said NZTA are using a figure of 12 point something million per life saved, but Treasury had a different number, medical policy analysts had a different number, what were those differences? And that must be quite significant because across government decision-making, they're not making, if they're using this, they're not making sensible decisions across portfolios. Yeah, yeah. so coming back to the numbers, um, the New Zealand Transport Authority, the study they've commissioned, it values the life 
of a, um, a road victim at about 12 and a half million. And it's, it's, it's sufficient to uh, just focus on um, um, treat all victims as if they were the same. Some of them will be young, some of them will be old, but it all kind of washes out. A, a sort of an average victim on the road is about 40 years of age. If they're killed, they lose about 40 years of life. And typically these people are in pretty good health. If you go to the medical system, the situation is quite different. If you're thinking about a medical intervention to save the lives of people, typically the people whose lives you're going to save with that medical intervention are not people typically who've got another 40 years to go. Mm. It might be a child, a one-year-old child, who um, if you intervene and save their life, that gives them another 80. But a more typical case in the medical system is you are saving the life, that is to say extending the life of someone who's, uh, who's relatively old and who hasn't got that much um, in the tank, that many years left in the tank. So what the medical system does is instead of valuing lives, it values life years. So if we engage in some intervention that will extend the life of some person by three years, you've got a value for each uh, life year, you multiply it by three to get the value of the life years saved. Um, and the medical system, the, the piece of it that um, quantifies the value of lives is a program that's um, financed by the government at Otago University called the Burden of Disease Epidemiology, version three. And um, the people who are running that program, names that uh, would be familiar to many New Zealanders, professors Michael Baker and Nick Wilson, um, very high-profile figures during the COVID um, era. Um, they are using a, a value of a life year of GDP per capita, as it's GDP uh, per head of population in New Zealand. Um, now, GDP per capita in New Zealand is currently about $70,000. So they're valuing uh, the, um, the life year of a, of a healthy person at about $70,000. Now, to turn that into the value of the life of a person who's got 40 years left in the tank and is currently pretty healthy, that's a discounting exercise over 40 years and there's some debate within reasonable bounds about what the right discount rate is, but it basically turns GDP per capita of $70,000 into a, a value of a life of about $2.3 million. And that's only one-sixth, one-fifth of what the NZTA is doing. And the NZTA is arriving at its figure um, through a, a study that's been commissioned and it's surveyed hundreds of New Zealanders about how much they'd be willing to pay to, um, um, to choose road A versus road B. And these roads are different in terms of their risks of, of you dying. Um, um, so that's a, um, a conventional and a quite rational way of, of approaching it. Whereas this GDP per capita, well, why is GDP per capita um, such, mm. a, such a good figure? Um, the, the medical academics who are using this figure, um, um, they seem to believe it comes from a World Health Organization um, 
um, recommendation, but it doesn't. The World Health Organization's recommendation is a GDP from GDP per capita to three times GDP per capita. So the medical academics are taking the lower bound on that um, and coming up with a value of a life with an average person of about 2.3 mil. So that's the medical academics in this burden of disease epidemiology program. And the purpose of that program is to advise government on which kinds of interventions would make sense. So these academics are studying various um, health interventions and they're saying this one passes the test, we recommend it, this one doesn't, don't do that one, okay? So uh, they're not determining what happens in the hospital system, but they're providing recommendations that are at least based on, a, on the valuation of a life. So that's them at 2.3 million. And then you've got Treasury, who have a, a template for cost-benefit analysis in the public sector. And sometimes projects that take place in the public sector, one of the things that might be the principal um, benefit from a project, but might just be a secondary benefit, that some lives would be saved. That is to say, some, some lives would be extended. No life can ever be saved. We all die in the end. It's just a question of extending lives. So they value a life year at the um, average ratio of cost to life years saved that uh, arises out of pharmac. And so... Pharmac's ratio on average of cost to life years saved is about $35,000. Um, so Treasury just takes that average, $35,000 per life year. That's only about half what the medical academics are doing. So it leads to the value of a life of an average person of about $1.1, $1.2 million. So you've got these three parts of the public sector. You've got Treasury. You've got the medical academics who are advising on what the hospital system should be doing. And then you've got um, the New Zealand Transport Authority with roading projects. And they're, they're using radically different numbers. And only one of those numbers, the process by which it's derived, makes any sense. Indeed. And in fact, if they were doing this consistently at the margin, which is a million dollars to spend, say, you take the million off Pharmac and give it to the wider medical authorities because they can, they've got a higher threshold. And at the margin, you take it off the medical authorities and give it to Pharmac. No, no, it should be the other way around. Other way around. Yes, the medical um, people and treasury are valued oh, of course. too yes, cheaply. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So if they, the proper thing to do would be. Quite to, right. Take, I do apologise. I've confused yeah. everyone. Yes. Yeah. If you take if you take um, NZTA's figure of twelve million and say that's the right figure that everyone should be using, that means that there'll be a whole series of projects that fast. Um, currently doesn't do, but could do, Correct. and the system could do, that would be viable once you valued the life Correct. considerably higher. Yes. Oh, my God, I had that completely wrong. I do apologise to listeners because here's me trying to use Martin to elucidate what's going on, and I've confused the situation because relative, just looking at the numbers, not saying who's right and who's wrong, uh, roading is justifying roading expenditure 
with a different criterion to Pharmac and the medical authorities, and they're saying a life on a road is worth hmm, up to 10 times uh, what it is in the medical system. Let me, let me just clarify that Pharmac does not itself um, put a, a formal value on life. What it okay. does is it um, seeks a budget from the government and currently it gets about a billion. And having got that budget, what Pharmac then does is basically it ranks possible projects in terms of the uh, cost versus the life saved and uses up its budget most got efficiently, it. so to speak. So Pharmac doesn't actually put a value on life. But the average that results from that gets used by Treasury and got then it. put into their cost-benefit model. And they're saying this is how politicians, by giving money to Pharmac, are valuing a human life. Yes, but Pharmac's only a very small part of um, the whole public sector. What's more, Pharmac's number that Treasury uses is the average. What you should be using is the mm. marginal figure, not mm. the average figure. Mm. Want the figure at the margin. Um, so there I'm, could be huge gains yes. in terms of either or both lives saved and money expenditured, expended just by uh, getting and applying a consistent figure. The startling um, example, the startling implication of all of this is that if NZTA's figure were applied to the medical system and Pharmac, that would justify a considerable increase in their budgets, yes. a considerable and, increase. And you could take that off roads. Uh, well, I, I was saying if you apply Roding's figure, um, if you instead said we're not going to spend any more or less, we're just going to allocate it more evenly, then you would have, a, yes. in effect, a, a value of a life of maybe $6 million, which means less roading projects, more medical projects. So to sum up, the important thing that we've seen here, Martin, is you start off thinking about uh, reducing a speed limit and you understand the benefits in terms of life saved and uh, accidents and injuries reduced. And then you say, but there's a cost to this, and the cost is extra time spent on the bus or in the car uh, or taxi or whatever, um, and you say, well, how do I make these comparable? We make them comparable by using dollars, because that's how we compare the cost of things. And you say, yes, but how do we value a life? Well, we can, and here are the techniques that we use to do that. And you've discussed some of them. So we get the lives saved and the injuries prevented. We can get a dollar value on that. And then you can come along and you can say, well, what's an hour of a person's time worth? We can get a value for that. And then we can start making the comparison on that decision to see if it's worthwhile. And then we can do that across the board. We could do that for, do we fund this drug? Do we spend more on hospitals? Do we fund this bridge project? Do we straighten this road? Do we build this tunnel? And to the extent that you're saving lives and reducing injury, we can get a dollar value. And then what we're saying is, well, hang on, if you look across all these items of expenditure, to the extent that you're putting in lives saved, injuries prevented, have the same number. 
make it consistent, and that would provide for a much better expenditure and a much better result, correct? Yes, indeed. And don't listen to this poor old radio host because he got it completely upside down and was fortunately rescued by Martin because I was just looking at those numbers and I confused myself. So again, that ability to think reasonably and sensibly about this and then to debate the things that can be debated and you never fall down that trap of the mayor of Wellington, Tory Tory Farnow, is it? Farnow, yeah. Farnow saying, oh, I don't care how much it costs the voters and time because, what, reducing the speed limit and saving lives is of infinite value. Just to um, to see if I've uh, this is a, this is a quote for uh, attributed to Tory Fano in a, a staff article on the twenty fourth of April. It's a bit of a no brainer. What is more important, the safety of our children and pedestrians, or an inconvenience to someone's trip? For me, I'm always going to go down the safety route. So that's a quote from Tory Farmer, the mayor of Wellington. Now, not only do I think it's wrong, even if she believes it, but she doesn't believe it. Because if she really did believe it, she'd ban cars in Wellington City, and she's not going to do that. And she would never get in one. Indeed. And that's part of the great thing about thinking about these things is that in economics, we learn to understand decision-making by what people do rather than what they say. Right? I suspect if we ever did get to a world in which um, cars were banned in uh, Wellington City, the Wellington City Council would write an exemption for the mayor and councillors. Yeah, well, I, I like it how it gets pointed out too that um, these celebrities um, like uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry want to ban guns every which way and complain about guns endlessly and then go to court so men with guns <laughs> Men with guns can wander, follow them around to protect them. Um, it's we do see a stunning hypocrisy from our leaders of all stars and all stripes uh, in this world, and it takes a Martin Lally to cut through and to provide that analysis. Martin, thank you for your well, time. Well, just just let me just quickly finish off with something else. Here's an even more stunning example of yes. the hypocrisy of the Wellington City Council. Several weeks ago, um, there was another uh, waterfront death in Wellington City Council, um, somebody walking along um, the edge of the waterfront, and there are places along the waterfront in Wellington where there's a vertical drop from the walkway straight into the water of about two metres. If you've had a few drinks at a nearby bar, and there are quite a number of bars um, on the waterfront in Wellington, it's possible to wander along and fall over. And if you're fairly inebriated, um, you drown. Now, there have been um, about one, there's been about one such incident every couple of years in, in Wellington City. And recently, a member of the Wellington City Council um, 
whose uh, name um, I um, regret, I cannot pull out of my um, memory at the present time. I um, would like to do so to give him uh, credit. Um, he suggested that um, uh, guardrails be placed along the relevant section of the waterfront to save those lives. And the lives that you'd save, well, about one every two years, uh, half a life a year, that's kind of in the ballpark of the number of lives you'd save if you reduce the speed limit from 50k to 30k. Mm. But what would it cost to put up these guardrails? Um, if you look at fencing costs, just Google fencing costs. It's a Next few hundred bucks a metre. Yeah. A few hundred bucks a metre. You know, it could be a million dollars, a million and a half. The fence has a life of 40 years. For the, save, for the spending of about a million bucks, a million and a half bucks, the Wellington City Council could save about one life every two years on these sort of waterfront deaths. Uh, so that's about 20 lives over um, the 40-year life of the fence, about as many lives as you'd save in the ballpark of the speed limit changes, but at a fraction of the cost, just a million dollars. And what that does is, is uh, I should say, the Wellington City Council, Mayor uh, Farno, was seemingly not in favour of that proposal from the councillor. And a person who represented the council, a person called Richard McLean, who's still employed by the Wellington City Council, he's quoted a few years ago when one of these deaths occurred and the same issue came up as saying that, well, we, we, we don't want to do that. The, um, the public wouldn't accept that. It's so it funny. Seems, yeah, now, it seems to me... As an economist, I ask myself, why are people acting differently in these two areas? Mia Fano and the majority of the council seem to be all in favour of uh, reducing speed limits, but apparently not in favour of putting up a fairly cheap fence that would save uh, a comparable number of lives. And the obvious explanation is that if you put up a fence, the council has to write out the cheque. Because if you lower speed limits from 50k to 30k, the people who pay for that are not the councillors having to write out a cheque and therefore have less money to spend on their cycleways or whatever. It's the general public of Wellington who bears the cost. So that's a general principle. Then, When it comes to deciding whether to do something, whether you have to pay for it or someone else pays for it is an important consideration. It is for that decision-maker, and, of course, you could uh, write off to the mayor and say, quote, it's a no-brainer, but I doubt she'd get the uh, sarcasm that was implied. Martin, always lovely, always an insight. Thank you for sharing your time with us. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. That was the wonderful Martin Rally, who makes economics real and allows us to think more consistently and reasonably and to see the issues when we're talking about things such as guardrails, speed limits, bridges, medical expenditure, just in terms of what the politicians themselves are saying. You're on Real Talk uh, Radio with Rodney Hyde. It's Reality Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.